Viktor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on High FM on the Finding Human program. And my guest today is Rabbi Levi Atsan and we are on Skype. And it's so nice to see your face, Rabbi. Welcome. Ray, let me just introduce Rabbi Afton. You know that we were last together this time last year. Can you believe it? In March last year. And thank goodness we have seen each other in between because the rabbi is uh, the senior rabbi of Linksfield Senderwitzel, the only rabbi there. And he's, um, uh, 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 it's our, he's our family's rabbi. And I believe he's part of our family, actually. Now, he's also an author, he's a presenter of the High FM for Bremen show, which is later on today. And he, he has daily podcasts that come out, Torah in a Year, Tanya to Transform, he does weekly shirim. And um, it's actually quite amazing what you do fit in and what you do set, uh, send out. Rabbi, welcome. Wow, thank you so much. Um, I cannot believe it's a year. I wouldn't have believed you. I would have thought it was it was much shorter than that. But uh, it's a privilege and an honor to be back on the show. Well, it's a privilege to have you. You know, last year we actually discussed freedom because it was just before Pesach. But this year um, we have a different sort of freedom, quite honestly. And the freedom that we're looking at now is coming out of our exodus. Uh, for a while, and you know that um, um, uh, uh, Rebbe Nachman of Breslev said, the exodus from Egypt occurs in every person, in every era, in every year, and in every day. What would you like to add to that? So, yeah, that's a, an interesting quote from Rabbi Nachman. I've also seen the quote from Rabbi, the, the Tanya author, Rabbi Shneri Zalman. Um, but I, like for me, the analogy more than the Exodus that resonates is Noah coming out of the ark. I, I used the analogy already a year ago, but it's, it's feeling more apropos. You know, Noah goes onto the ark with his family and there's a whole world that he leaves behind. He comes out a year later and the world is gone. And now he has to adjust into a new reality. Unfortunately, he didn't adjust too well. He got himself drunk very quickly and had some uh, escapade with his son, Ham, which didn't end well. So, like Noah after the flood, I think many of us are struggling to come into a world that's so different, but also with a year or two years actually of, you know, new habits, new traumas, new fears, and struggling to sit there saying, okay, you know, there was the there was before the flood, there was the ark, but now it's a new world, and it's neither of the two. It's a new world, and I think yes, many of us are are struggling, you know, struggling to make sense of this new world, and allowing too much of the past to hold today hostage. Mm-hmm. Rabbi, I, I agree with what you're saying. We're going to get back to that in a moment. Thank you, Craig. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. 
only on 101.9 High FM. Rabbi Abtson, I'm back with you. And you? we were talking about the ark and, you know, uh, and you were tying it in with coming out of, of our own exodus and, and how Noah went in to the ark and didn't know when it was going to end, when the waters were going to subside and when they did, what would freedom look like? So would you like to go on with that thought? Yes. As mentioned, Noah comes out, you know, he, he spent a year surviving. We're told it was his job to feed all the animals. He, the, the Medrash, the ancient Jewish um, commentary that kind of offers the background beyond the actual text in the, in the Torah, shares how literally the man didn't sleep, barely ate. His job was to keep God's creatures alive for a year. And you can imagine a year full of self-pity, of anger, of worry, of fear, claustrophobia. Um, that's why the arc actually resonates so much, because literally that's what lockdown felt like often. And then God says, okay, come out of the ark, comes out. We're told that God actually had to force him because although he wanted to, at the last moment he didn't want to. He started hesitating. He got started getting nervous. And God says, no, 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 come. We're going to do this. But what's the first thing he does? He plants a vineyard and gets himself drunk. And you can understand why. I remember reading in, in Rabbi Sachs, Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs's, no, not Rabbi Sachs, sorry, Rabbi Lau, Chief Rabbi Lau, Israel Lau, the Holocaust survivor. See, he writes in his autobiography, an incredible autobiography. See, he writes over there that at some stage he went to visit a Holocaust survivor who was a poet, a Yiddish poet. And this guy says to Rabbi, Sa uh, to Rabbi Lau, I feel like Noah after the flood. You know, I feel like I, my world has been destroyed and I just want to get myself drunk. He actually had become a drunk, unfortunately, and he kind of just gave his life up to the bottle. And Rabbi Lau says, while I, while I totally, you know, empathized with the man and understood where he's coming from, that wasn't my choice. My choice was to go on to live. But I remember that imagery because it is a tempting and maybe even logical way to, you know, to cope out and just say, I can't do this. It's too overwhelming. This is not what I trained for. You know, this is not what my life trained me to do. You know, we go to school and we learn certain subjects and we go to university and we learn certain subjects and we're trained in certain areas. And then certain things come to your life that you're not trained for. And the question is how you deal with it then. And none of us, not one person on this planet today was trained for the last two years. It wasn't in any of our curriculums. It wasn't in any of our uh, parenting manuals. And the question is, okay, so now we're somewhat through it, obviously not fully, but we're, we could pray that the worst is behind us. But now what? Now, how do I adjust to this new world, which is so dissimilar to the world before 2020 and dissimilar to the world over the last two years? It's a new world. And the, navigating that is, is an act of incredible bravery. And that's why we're actually here to discuss. We're here to discuss because it's not easy. It's not something that's like, you turn on a switch and people intuitively figure it out. We're all struggling in this. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. Absolutely. And I, and I read a, a remarkable 
a clown, should I say, this man, George Bonanno, who he's a professor of clinical psychology at Teachers College, Columbia University in the USA. And he introduced the idea of resilience to the study of loss and trauma. And uh, he's actually, he's a pioneer in the field of bereavement and grief. But he brings in resilience and he said how before we always talked about um, uh, grief coming in with prolonged uh, the uh, post-traumatic stress disorder but he said, and major depressive disorder that goes with the uncertainty of it often. And he said there's just so much more to this picture. And that is resilience. The resilience that we all have within us. And it's the resilience in the in the face of the traumatic um, uh, events. And it's often assumed to be very rare. And I think sometimes it takes someone to actually remind yourself, to remind you that you have resilience. Mm. And you, this year, this last year, I mean, I, I know as a community rabbi of a very large congregation of a very mixed age group, you have had to deal with so much trauma, with loss through COVID, through other illnesses, with suicides, with um, divorces, with, with uh, also with simpers, but uh, but often with simpers come uh, um, problems within families. Drama. Drama. Drama, absolutely. So what have you noticed about resilience? Have you, do you agree with him that there is resilience that we can tap into? I believe that we are all born with resilience, but I think some of us are educated out of it. Uh, and how does that happen? Um, you know, Sir Ken Robinson, uh, you know, like the, the most watched TED Talk, so he uh, he talks who about just, how, sorry you broke up just then who you know the, the most popular TED talk is by a, a guy named Sir Ken I think Robinson or something like that, and he talks about being educated out of creativity. We're all born with creativity, and many of us are educated out, <laughs> rather than some people becoming creative. We're all creative, and the question is, do we keep it? So I would say the same thing. We're all resilient. I mean, think about childbirth. You know, a baby has to be resilient to go through childbirth, to go through the, you know, just speak from being from a helpless human being on the first day of their life to an independent being just a few short years later in a very, you know, unnerving world. So I do think we're all born resilient. I do think, however, many of us are educated out of it, and that is by being cocooned by our parents not letting us fail, by our parents fighting for us to always be the winner and not allowing us to live with disappointment. Um, you know, because here's the fact, resilience doesn't come by having successes. Resilience comes from failures. And if you're cushioned from failures, then you're never exercising the muscle. And if you don't exercise the muscle, and the muscle, like any other muscle of your body, just becomes absolutely be useless. Mm, absolutely. And we're going to get back to that in a moment. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. We've got a very short YouTube now by one of your favorites and my favorites, Rabbi, uh, the late Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky, on responding to stress. There's something I want to tell you about uh, the stress and how we have to look at stress. Okay, and I think it's an important thing because uh, 
many people have told me from my lectures is the one thing they remember. Okay. I was sitting in a dentist's office and looked at an article that said, how do lobsters grow? Well, I don't care how lobsters grow. But I was interested in it. And it points out that a lobster is a soft, mushy animal that lives inside of a rigid shell. That rigid shell does not expand. Well, how can the lobster grow? Well, as the lobster grows, that shell becomes very confining. Right? And the, kind of the lobster feels itself under pressure and uncomfortable. It goes under a rock formation to protect itself from predatory fish, casts off the shell, and produces a new one. Well, eventually, that shell becomes very uncomfortable as it grows, right? Back under the rocks. And the lobster repeats this numerous times. The stimulus for the lobster to be able to grow is that it feels uncomfortable. Right? Now, if lobsters had doctors, they would never grow. Because as soon as the lobster feels uncomfortable, goes to the doctor, gets a Valium, gets a Percocet, feels fine, never gets off its shell. So I think that we have to realize is that we have to realize that times of stress are also times that are signals for growth. And if we use adversity properly, we can grow through adversity. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Suze Jackson on Finding Human, and I'm back with, with Rabbi Levi Aftson. If you would like to contact us, please do so on 34519, or you can telegram us on 061-895-1019. Rabbi, um, that, what, what Abraham Tversky said actually ties in what you said with about how we overprotect our children, we don't allow them to feel this, the vulnerability, the feeling that they are getting actually too tight in their skin and they, it's time to grow. Instead, we keep them as these little mushy messes. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think at some stage, uh, you know, I'm not old enough to understand what happened in parenting techniques, but at some stage, parents start convincing themselves that it's their moral duty to make their children's life pleasant. <laughs> no, really, like, I, like, like that. Literally, it's their moral duty to make sure their children don't have pain. Now, and obviously, every parent has to protect their child from suffering and, you know, real pain. But no, it's not our job. You know, I can't protect my child from the uh, needles injection, um, and I cannot protect my child from the disappointments of life. And I didn't bring my children into this world to give them a life of pleasure. Hopefully, what I'll give them is a life of meaning, and they'll find it themselves. It's not even me giving it to them. It's me helping them find it. But when there's this, you know, culture that says it's my job to make my child's life as easy, let them not struggle for their first car. Let me just give it to them. Let me let them not struggle for their house. Let me just give it to them. Let them not struggle to get onto the A team or B team or C team. No, let me just pull my connections and get them there. Let them, you know, let me just throw my money around or my, my loud mouth to make their life, to advance their dreams. Then what we're doing is we're actually doing a huge disservice for them because like you, like Rabbi, Sack, Rabbi uh, Tversky says, they're, they're not able to stretch themselves. And here's one thing I've learned in life. Everything is a muscle. You know, everyone, often when we think about muscles, we think about training in the gym, but everything is mus a muscle. Spirituality is a muscle. Kindness is a muscle. Generosity is a muscle. Love is a muscle. 
and so is resilience and grit and tenacity. They are muscles. And if we don't exercise them, then we are, we're going to struggle to cope with what life is. And unfortunately, we've seen it. We've seen a, a huge amount of struggle simply to cope with life. Yeah, absolutely. I have to agree with you. And, you know, I never forget going, having to give a, a talk to a very large audience. And I was really nervous about it. And I happened to say to someone who was with me, you know, uh, I'm, I'm actually really scared. And they said to me, oh, you know, you'll be fine. You always are. Now, that's not what I actually wanted to hear. I, I wanted to hear, well, it must be frightening and, and, you know, get into that, allow myself to sort of feel frightening. But, I, I you know, they were so adamant that uh, I would be fine that I thought, well, I better not let them down. Never mind letting myself down. But, you know, that, that is that feeling that um, if, if she had said to me, it must be terrifying, I mean, I don't blame you, I would have gone on to that stage a lot more fearful. Um, thinking, well, actually, she doesn't believe in me, you know, and just like I'm not believing in myself. Yes, 100%. Um, there's a big difference between, you know, acknowledging somebody and just saying, gosh, you know, that, you know, I, I feel for you, rather than saying it's actually scary and then creating an objective reality. Mm. Um, and I think when our kids come home, you know, and they sit there saying, oh, yeah, I fell down, you instead of saying that's a tragedy, you could just say, you know, that must have been sore, but like, don't turn it into like, oh my gosh, that you fell down, someone pushed you down. Oh, <gasps> wow. Like, you know, like, then the kids are saying, oh my gosh, you know, it's like the boys acted like boys and the world came to an end. Now, obviously, if there was serious bullying, it's something else. But when every little mishap of life turns into a drama, and you know, we were talking about earlier how often simchas turn into a drama, family joys. And like, hello, people, it is the color of the tablecloth. Let's not turn it into a no, but I <laughs> ordered the beige and you gave me the white. OK, so what are you showing? You're showing that the color of a tablecloth knocks you off your center. Mm. So so how are we going to cope with anything? It's so true. And, you know, I read the other day about the seven C's of resilience, and I found them quite interesting. It was, it was written by a child, a, a pediatrician, and they said the first one is competence, the ability to know how to handle stressful situations effectively. And this requires having the skills to face challenges. Then confidence, which is the belief in one's own ability, and it's rooted in this competence incompetence and then connection children with close ties to family friends whether it's a religious organization a community are also likely to have a stronger sense of security and with that comes the sense of belonging which is connection and then contribution and now this i really i think this is something that we fail so often at contribution that if children can experience personally contributing to the world they can learn the powerful lesson that the world is a better place because they are in it. And I love that. And then coping. Children who have a wide repertoire of coping skills, for instance, social skills, stress reduction skills, whatever it might be, are actually able to cope more effectively. And we've got to show them that we believe in them, that they can cope. And then control. 
and that when children realize that they do have control over their decisions and actions, they're more likely to make the choices that actually help them bounce back. But so often it's the parents making the choices and the children are not bouncing back. It's interesting because I gave a share yesterday to a group of ladies on Monday afternoon. And really, this was my topic, and not in connection to the show we were having today. I don't know, I just gravitated to that topic. And that is, every time you make a choice for somebody else, you are weakening their ability of making choices. Because, like everything else, choice is also a muscle. And free choice is the single biggest gift and challenge of being human because we could choose to build a beautiful life for ourselves, or we could choose to destroy our lives. You know, often people say, you know, the, the biggest enemy, the biggest threat out there is COVID, it's the government, it's xenophobia, and they're all problems. But you know, the, the person who's going to cause you the most pain in your life, you know who that is? You. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the so person true. who's going to say the nastiest things to you, is you. Nobody's ever going to curse you out the way you curse yourself out in the mirror. Okay? Nobody's ever going to call you names the way we you know, we call ourselves names. So, instead of protecting ourselves, spending so much energy only protecting ourselves from outside influences which do have an influence, we should be protecting ourselves from our own unhealthy narratives. And one of the most unhealthy narratives is I can't cope. I'm overwhelmed. Oh my gosh, it's just beyond. Like I just, you know, this is I'm so you know, drowned in, in, in the issue and I'm so overwhelmed, I'm not coping, etc. And all the wonderful expressions we use to describe um, you know, how overwhelming that. life is. And yes, it's okay once in a while to be overwhelmed, but like when we're getting overwhelmed by everything, then 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 this life is, is actually hard to manage. So true. And you know, last night, just as I was about to go to sleep, my phone beeped next to me. And that's when I realized, actually throw the phone into another bedroom at night. Because it came up as J-Post and it said, Ukraine's, Ukraine says that Russia will attack on Wednesday. And, you know, my first immediate thought was, well, I don't know when I'll be getting to Israel then, because never mind COVID, never mind boosters, now it's Ukraine. Where is it going to be safe? You know, the, the entire world's falling apart. And I, I actually found myself having to stop myself and, and find the humor in what I was thinking, not in the humor of the poor Ukrainians being attacked, but in my own drama that I was creating. Here I was in my bed, about to go to sleep in a very comfortable environment. And I was immediately being terrified of flying in case I couldn't get back home because of the uh, Ukraine was going to be attacked. So we yeah. take on the problems of the world. So, yeah, interesting. I was talking to somebody, I forget who it was, who told me recently, he said he used to think that the biggest emotion that drives people is maybe jealousy, anger, love. But over the last two years, what we've discovered about ourselves is the most powerful emotion is fear. Mm-hmm. Fear so- is hugely powerful and pretty much we are getting triggered by fear because yes is the ukrainian russian story fearful yes but 
I'm not focusing on the other 180 countries that are living in peace. What, what I'm doing is I'm focusing on that challenge of my whole world. And so too, unfortunately, with all the tragedies that happen in the community, we become, we're just like, we're almost addicted to it. Like, mm -hmm. okay, tell me more. What else is going on? Another scandal, another, another terrible tragedy. And then the fear just goes and goes. And we convince ourselves we're seeing the world objectively. But like you said, you were sitting in your comfortable bed in a safe environment, feeling sorry for yourself about the situation of the world, while, yes, there's nothing, it's the right thing to feel empathy for that challenge, but it's not the right thing that every tsara, every little issue or big issue out there overwhelms us. You know, and I was giving this point over at a class one time, and somebody says, so Rabbi, are you saying no to empathy? I said, no, I'm saying yes to life. Mm, absolutely. Because you cannot live like that. Maybe it feels morally right to take every tragedy personally and to take everybody's pain upon yourself, but it, it doesn't work with life. So either we give up on life or we learn how to channel how much we're willing to take on ourselves. And at some stage, you see, you know, you could say a prayer to God, but then you say, it's not my thing to carry. It's not my monkey to carry on my shoulder. It's not my issue. Or as one cynic told me, shrug and let the let the globe fall off your shoulder in other words stop carrying the world it's god's job to carry the world it's not our job to especially that i can't do much about it putin is not waiting for me and my phone call to hear my incredible insights about backing off from ukraine so accepting that there's very little i could do other than pray means that okay so if it's, it's something i cannot do then i will not be burdened by it. i mean this is the basics of the serenity prayer but we often forget it. And you know, it reminds me of, well, sometimes it's called a Hasidic tale, other times it's called a Buddhist tale. So <laughs> we can choose which we want. Today we'll have it as a Hasidic uh, tale. Uh, uh, two um, Hasidic rab uh, men come up to a river and they're about to pass across the river. It was pretty full and there was a, a woman on the side and she couldn't make it through. So the one, we'll call him a rabbi, picked her up and put her on her, his back and carried her over to the other side of the river. And his partner, and, and put her down on the other side and went on walking. His partner went on walking with him and said to him, um, and for a long time wasn't talking to him. And then he said, you know, I'm really worried. You know, we're not supposed to carry women. We're not supposed to be close to other women. And yet you went and you carried that woman. And he said, yes, but the difference is, I put her down, you are still carrying her. Yes. Yes, I've also heard that story in multiple sources. Yeah. In, in other words, I had to do what I had to do, and you're, you're still carrying that thing. But unfortunately, that's what we are dealing with. We carry stuff for so long, you know, and we live in a world in a, which is so mentally, mental health aware, which is awesome compared to where we're coming from. But we're so sensitive to every feeling, every trauma, every depression that we have, that I think we indulge in it too much. We've got the pendulum has gone, and the whole day we're just analyzing our feelings instead of actually going on with life. Mm -hmm. There's a time to analyze feelings, but if the whole day I'm just unpacking feelings, then when am I actually living? Absolutely. You know what I would like to actually talk about now? You gave a, a talk a while ago to the Wednesday group, and uh, you probably posted it on other blogs as well. And it was, if I walk away, am I weak? 
and replacing rigidity with compassion. Now, you spoke in that about the the pillars of the world, the three pillars, the mystical, the what mysticism says about the pillars that the world stands on. Would you just in, um, tell me about that? Okay, well, if anyone's ever seen a, a, the basic Kabbalistic chart, they'll see that it is three lines, three parallel lines, a, a, a line on the right, a line on the middle, and a line on the left. And on each line are various circles. So the, the one of the basic ideas of Kabbalah is that there's 10 faculties, 10 attributes, 10 personalities, 10 ways that God expresses himself in this world. Kindness, discipline, compassion, courage, humility, connection, royalty, creativity, analytical, personalizing ideas. Those are the 10. And there are those on the right, those on the left, and those on the center. So the main ones, the archetypes on each of them is chesed, kindness, on the right, gevura, discipline, on the left, right symbolizing, not right politically, but right as in, you know, right symbolizing generosity, giving, and left symbolizing Kabbalistically constraint, holding back, which sometimes could be the right thing to do. It's not a bad thing. Holding back is not always bad, and giving is not always good. I mean, if I give a kid a knife because they're begging, it's not good. Holding back is the thing I have to do. But then there's the, the center, and the center is where the two bridge, where I bring in discipline. In other words, I'm aware of the person, and I'm not just giving because I want to give, but being aware of the person, I still give in a way that works for them. You see, kindness, I'm not wor- I don't care about you, really. I'm just giving. I'm not asking what you need. I'm focusing on the fact that I want to give to you. Discipline, I'm focusing only on what what I think you need, but not without compassion. I'm not actually listening. I'm just saying, okay, you don't need this. The middle one, rachamim, tiferet, compassion, is coming and saying, I'm actually going to listen to what you need. I'm actually going to understand you. And I'm going to give and I'm going to forgive because I understand your scenario. So even if you don't deserve kindness, I'll give it to you, maybe not the same way I would give it previously, I'll give it to you in a place of compassion, of empathy. And the world stands on three pillars, but the the strongest pillar is the central pillar. And the central pillar is to treat everything in this world, including yourself, with compassion, with empathy. Now, uh, that's beautiful. And the Rebbe actually said to be kind is more important than to be right. Many times what people need is not a brilliant mind that speaks, but a special heart that listens. Thank you, Craig. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and we're about to uh, hear also a very short YouTube on the victim mentality by Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Something bad happens. There are two responses. Number one, we can complain. Number two, we can do something about it. Now, if we simply complain, if we see ourselves as victims, the truth is that 
there's good news for being a victim. Everyone has compassion for you. Everyone has Rahmanas for you. It's comfortable being a victim. The only trouble with being a victim is that you, by defining yourself as such, have put yourself out of any possible way of improving your situation. Because if it isn't your fault, you can't put it right. Somebody else has to. And you thereby hand over your life to somebody else. The Jewish way is to say, if I see something wrong in the world, let me be one of the first to put it right. That is responsibility. And that literally is what responsibility means. God is calling to us. As he called to the first human being in the Garden of Eden, Ayeka, where are you? Help me put out the fire. And that is the Jewish way, not to see ourselves as victims, even though we have been victims, but to see ourselves as responsible agents who, working together in conjunction with one another and with that little voice from heaven, can change the world. That is the only way to be. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with Rabbi Levi Aptson. And as usual, our time is going very quickly. Rabbi, you know, you were talking about the, the pillars of the, that the world stands in. Um, and, you know, I, I should imagine that within that, in those pillars, which are neither bad or good, you said, they're, they're, but both can be extremes on either side. So where would victim come in with that, do you think? The victimhood. Interesting. So I'll tell you, the, the shear I gave last week, um, which you're referring to, which was about compassion, mm. was explaining why we need to forgive more. We forgive when we understand the person's circumstances, when we realize that we're not a victim, but in other words, we are just because something was done to us, we're not defined by that. And therefore, we could look at the person and see their entire reality and develop compassion for their brokenness. So compassion really is the only road to true forgiveness because some people say forgiveness is just forgive and forget. But that's often hard. I can't forgive and forget. However, what I could do is I can spend time understanding that person's scenario, understanding what, how much pain does a person have to be to be so evil? How much pain does a person have to be to cause so much hurt? And I am never going to justify what they've done because a person's still responsible for their actions, but I could see why they were so, the stimuli to act so negatively was there. And that compassion allows me to sit there saying, I am so grateful I'm not that messed up. I'm so grateful I don't have those challenges. And I, I feel compassion for the person's scenario. I feel, and therefore I forgive them. Therefore I'm able to sit there saying, even though you don't deserve my kindness, you do, you do as a fellow human being, deserve my compassion. And I'm not talking about sympathy in a patronizing way. I'm saying generally looking at a person as an equal and feeling for, for their story because one thing I've learned is for a person to really hurt somebody else, 
you have to be hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. Hurt people hurt people, as the expression goes. Yes. Um, but often, instead of do- compassion, what we develop is simply focusing on us, not on the not on the other person. And we just say, okay, but what do I feel? What do I feel? And then we start feeling like a victim, and we start feeling self pity, and we say it's not. I don't, I don't deserve this, and I don't this, and I don't that. And you know what? There's a time for that. There's nothing wrong with self-pity in the right amount of dosage. Um, you know, everyone, everyone, every human being wants to, once in a while, put their head into the pillow and feel sorry for themselves. But the question is, is that my way of life? Is that my way of coping? Or is my way of coping and saying, okay, yes, I was hurt, but I don't want to live with this grudge. I don't want to feel sorry for myself. I don't want to feel like that person has so much power over me that they'll dictate how my life plays out. I actually want to be bigger than this. Let go of this individual. Let go of the pain. And the way to do that is compassion. Um, I, I agree with you with compassion. It's compassion for ourselves first, I do think, and then pa- compassion for others. And the victim, I think we can ask we ourselves so often put ourselves into victim mode and you know and if you actually look into it you you see that it goes back perhaps generations even and we're still saying well it's because of that that i am like i am well the bible the torah tells us the story of adam and eve eating from the tree of knowledge and god comes to adam and says why did you eat from the tree and instead of taking ownership and agency what does he say it's my wife's fault. And he comes to the wife, to Eve, and Eve, and he says, Eve, what's your story? She says, it's a serpent's fault. <laughs> we'll get back to that in a moment. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with Rabbi Levi Aftsan. And we were talking about... Um, blaming each other and being the victim and you were talking about adam and eve and uh, i couldn't help thinking about a podcast that you put out a few weeks ago don't get in the way of your own happiness by being so right yes and that's exactly it uh, you know i mean i'm laughing as i'm saying that to you because i think sometimes we're so intent on showing the other person that they're wrong that uh, we actually can't even see that perhaps we're also wrong. And so often it is a combination. And I'll say even more than that, 100%. But sometimes we don't realize that even if we're right, by being right, we're sacrificing our happiness. Mm. In other words, let's say you're the genius in the marriage and your spouse is an absolute idiot. But if all you're going to do is mention it all the time, how you're right and they're wrong, you might win. but you'll lose your relationship. Yeah, absolutely. That also reminds me of something that the Rebbe said. He said, you already belong. You're already holy. You're already loved. Now you too must love. And by loving, help others feel that they also belong. 100%. And and I remember when I got my license, somebody told me, he says, Levy, when you're on the road, if don't be right, be, be smart. Why? Because if I'm right, I'll say, hey, it's my lane. So if the taxi comes in front of me and tries to cut me off, I'll say, hey, it's my lane. Well, you know how that's going to work. You deal with it, right? If you're driving on the road and you sit, I remember one time driving with a guy that had road rage and it made an impression on me. It was the only time I ever got in the car and he managed to get angry at a taxi on Louis Boca. 
genius. And um, <laughs> been there, done that. Yeah, and I looked at him and I was thinking to myself, I was saying, my God, if that's like, and I finally understood what road rage looks like. It's just this entitlement on the road. And yes, the, was the person who did cut them off wrong? Yeah, but so what? Now what? Are you going to live with that for the rest of the day? And unfortunately, that's what often we do. The guy cut us off. He's long past it. He didn't even think about it twice. You're safe. You're still alive. You're good. You're, nothing happened to your car. But the rest of the day, you're thinking, how dare I? Okay, you're right. Now what? Now you're going to be miserable for the whole day? Come on. And you're going to carry that the entire day. And not only... Um, spoil your day but spoil everybody else that you come in contact with and i think that's where responsibility comes in because it's our response to a situation like that road rage whatever it is uh, that also affects everybody else that we come in contact with for that day and, and i don't believe that we have the right to do that 100%. that's why like before you walk into your house do your best to, to, to shrug off all that self-pity. And yes, sometimes it's very, very hard, but it's our obligation to not bring our self-pity, our victimhood, our anger into other environments. It's our responsibility and we can do it. Will we fail sometimes? Yes, nobody's talking about absolutes, but on this, we cannot afford that every day we're just carrying around our sorrows on our shoulder. We can't afford that when people look at us, they just want to run for the hills or jump, you know, because of the, all the anger and, and sadness. No, we, despite what we're dealing with, yes, we could have the friends to unload and we could have our spouse and we could have, you know, healthy outlets, but we go on with life and we don't only fake it, we genuinely bring our happiness back. I do believe that it, it, um, it really does, it, it rebounds, happiness rebounds, you know, if you come across someone who's able to laugh at at life, it's a quite amazing how they uplift the entire atmosphere. You can go into a really heavy atmosphere of everybody being very angry with one another, this family not talking to that family, and this one fighting with that one. The children are all picking up on this energy and are fighting with each other as well. And someone can come in with a, a positive energy, an energy of love, and it's quite amazing how they can change that entire atmosphere. 100%. One rock in a family can stabilize everybody. I love that. And on that note, I'm being told to wrap up, wrap up, wrap up. What time are you coming on today on the Fabringen Show? Please go on at 1 p.m. At 1 p.m. So I'd advise you all to go on to um, your blogs, onto the Google, look up Rabbi Levi Aftson. He's got some wonderful, wonderful blogs on there, and you'll enjoy it. And thank you so much, Craig. I know you're doing this on your own, and you're managing fantastically while Bussy's away. So thank you, and thank you so much, Rabbi. And uh, Shalom is, uh, um, Shulem, the singer, is going to be singing us out with Face the Unknown.